Well, good evening. Thank you for having me back again, especially after last time. Um, Revelation chapter 3. Uh, I want to start tonight with a few apologies. The first of which is that um, David's sermon from last week hasn't made it onto the website yet. So I'm flying blind tonight. I may contradict. I may preach the exact same sermon again. We'll just see what happens. Um, the second is that uh, I've got to rush off straight after this service. My kids are sick at home. My wife's at work. And so I've just got to make sure that they're, they're keeping well, that my three-year-old's keeping a good eye on my one-year-old. Um, so if you have any complaints uh, or any questions, direct them to Paul Matthews. Um, he's essentially, I've been discipling him for some time now, and he's essentially a carbon copy of me by now. So he'll give you a pretty faithful answer. The last of these apologies uh, is to David Jones himself, who uh, just moments ago, uh, we were standing by the book table and he said, you don't want anything by Bonhoeffer. Um, to which I replied, the quote that I'm beginning with tonight is from Bonhoeffer. So um, an apology uh, there, but let me read it out to you and I'll hear afterwards um, the, the concerns that maybe David has with him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, um, a Lutheran pastor for those Hitler um, for, for the uh, duration of his reign and actually got bound up in a plot to assassinate Hitler. He's a fascinating person. But he wrote in a book called The Cost of Discipleship um, uh, about this sort of contrast between believing in Christianity as an abstract set of ideas, doctrines and practices, and actually following the living Christ. And this is what he said. He said, with an abstract idea, it is possible to enter into a relation of formal knowledge to become enthusiastic about it, and perhaps even to put it into practice. But it can never be followed in personal obedience. Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. It remains an abstract idea. Discipleship without Jesus Christ is a way of our own choosing. It may be the ideal way. It may even lead to martyrdom, but it is devoid of all promise and Jesus Christ will certainly reject it. What he's saying is that you can be a Christian without actually knowing the living Christ. Um, and we, we notice that every time that we do the census, right, which we did in the week, you check the box marked Christian or if you're diehard marked Presbyterian. Um, and many, many people check that box with you whose beliefs and whose practice of their faith looks nothing like yours. This is Christianity without Christ. It's a one-way thing. It's a thing that uh, you can sort of define. You embrace it for yourself and you set its limits in your life, where it can go, where it can't go. And you in engage with it then merely as an abstract idea. Like Christianity means knowing the living Christ. And that means that true Christianity is a two-way street. You're actually in relationship with a person. You're not just affirming a set of concepts. You're being discipled by Christ himself. That makes it firstly um, much riskier, a much riskier course of action because the living Christ can actually demand personal obedience of you. He's not an idea that you get to debate and discuss and sort of weigh up the merits of. He can just say, this is what I command you to do. And we've seen that through these seven letters, haven't we, to the churches, that Christ actually demands this kind of personal obedience of blessing. Because you can believe in a religious idea, a religious concept, all you want. You can love it and cherish it very, very dearly, but it will never love you back. It will never care about you. 
It doesn't have power to do anything for you. But the living Christ does love his people, doesn't he? And the living Christ acts on their behalf. Now, why do I begin this way? Well, as I've been praying for you um, for the last few weeks and months, um, for this series and for, this, um, for my sermons, I've been increasingly burdened for you for, for two things. Firstly, I, I, I want to see you. I think Christ wants to see you. I think your elders want to see you become a community who are just enamoured with your Lord, who just love Christ, who are just fervent in your love for Christ. Is your, uh, is your slogan here still serious about Jesus? Is that, is that one being dusted off and brought out recently? Um, to be serious about Jesus. But secondly, that you would be a community of people who are mobilised, who are mobilised with the message of Jesus into this community, who go to your neighbours, who go into your city and who share the love of Christ, who preach the gospel of Christ. And simply... Um, Being a Christian, simply checking the box on the census isn't enough motivation for you to do either of those things. If you want to be motivated to do either of those things, and if you want the power to do those things, you must be motivated and empowered by the person of Christ himself. So who is this living Christ? Well, as with the other letters, we get a snapshot at the beginning here. If you've got your Bible there, um, open it back up to Revelation 3 and verse 7. But Jesus says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. When Jesus calls himself the true one there, that word true uh, doesn't refer to sort of being factually correct, but it refers to being genuine or being real. Jesus was not a, a myth cooked up uh, by eager followers. That's a, that's a common understanding of who Jesus is today, isn't it? Nor is he, um, Jordan Peterson's got quite famous recently, hasn't he? And he seems to sort of see Jesus as a, the, the sum total of our psychological projections and expectations of the perfect, ideal, archetypal human being. He's not that either. Jesus actually is the true one. He's more real than you or I. He's more real than your husband or wife. He's more real than your kids because Christ is the one who has life in himself. All of us are dependent upon him. He's hyper real. And he's said here to have the key of David. Now that's uh, a slightly obscure reference to the prophet Isaiah uh, in chapter 22 in which a prophecy is is given to a guy named Shebna. Shebna was uh, the royal steward over King David's house. And this guy had become proud and presumptuous. And so he lost his job and his job was given to another. And here's the prophecy to Shebna. It says, I will clothe him, uh, that is uh, this other guy, with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit authority uh, into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. The guy who takes his job is named Eliakim. And that's the figure that Jesus is, um, is said to be here. That um, there are many people who speak for God. There are many people who are presumptuous in their claims about you know, being able to steward the kingdom of God. But Jesus is the rightful head of that kingdom. 
He has the key of David. He opens the door to whom he wills and shuts it on whom he wills. So that's the Christ who is addressing this church. Now let's have a look at the, the situation of the church itself. Um, we learn two things about the state of the church in Philadelphia from this letter. The first is that it is a weak church. And the second is that it's a church that is opposed. We find out that it's a weak church in verse 8 there. Jesus says uh, in the middle there of verse 8, I know that you have but little power. Uh, there were two uh, religious groups, or there are two religious groups mentioned um, from Philadelphia in this passage. One is the church and the other is the synagogue. And it seems that the weakness of the church that Christ is referring to there is, um, is their relative insignificance when compared to uh, the synagogue. Here's how... Uh, I'm now nervous about everyone I quote now that David said that about Bonhoeffer. This is what N.T. Wright says. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is what N.T. Wright says. He says, We should not imagine in Philadelphia a church on one street corner and a synagogue on another, as in many cities today. We should imagine a Jewish community of several thousand with its own buildings and its own community life and a church of probably two or three dozen at most, holding on to the highly improbable and extremely risky claim that the God of Israel had raised Jesus from the dead. So the church found itself not only paling in significance to this synagogue, it was just a tiny group of people in a, in a, in a, a landscape dominated by the synagogue, um, but it also found itself then opposed by this synagogue. You'll see there um, in verse 9 that Jesus calls the synagogue uh, the synagogue of Satan. Um, and that's been taken, you can imagine, and used as a kind of, this is anti-Semitic. John, who wrote this book, was a Jew. The reference there to the synagogue of Satan is actually talking about how the synagogue is behaving. The, uh, the name Satan, you, you know, means adversary. And this synagogue, inasmuch as it is opposing the church in this place, is not actually acting for God as it claims to, but it's acting in the cause of Satan. So they're opposing the church. One of the main forms that this seems to have taken um, is that of excommunication. So most of the uh, church at Philadelphia would have actually been comprised of Jewish believers. And when they came to faith in Christ, they were excommunicated from the synagogue. The doors of the synagogue were shut to them. Um, that had a social component, you can imagine. Their normal patterns of life would have been interrupted. Relationships with family and friends would have been, um, would have been interrupted. But also then there was a sort of spiritual threat that was inherent in that. That there was this idea that if the doors of the synagogue are shut to you, so too are the doors of the kingdom of God. You are now outside of the salvation of God, outside of the people of God. So what will Christ say then to this powerless church of a few dozen, to this opposed church? Well, he gives a word of encouragement and a word of invitation. Verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What we get in that first verse there is sort of Christianity 101. We sung it in one of the kids' songs there, um, that actually um, when you are weak in Christ, when you are powerless in Christ, 
You're not weak at all, are you? You're actually strong. Jesus says, yes, you're weak, but you're faithful to me, and therefore I've opened to you this door of opportunity. Now that truth runs very core to our faith, right? Our weakness and Christ's strength. And in fact, Christ's delight in using weak things in order to show his power. And we love that, don't we? That's a, that's a, a sort of a romantic idea in our minds and a poetic thing. But we don't love it so much, I think, when it actually shows up in our own lives. We like hearing stories about other people, weak people whom Christ has used. But what about when, when we experience that? Because firstly, it means that we have to be weak in the first place, right? That we actually have to have these, these weaknesses, these pow- this powerlessness. I imagine in a room like this, as I sort of scan around, that there are all sorts of weaknesses represented. Uh, some of you would have physical weaknesses. You, you've got chronic pain or maybe you've just got ongoing health concerns. Some of you have psychological weaknesses. Maybe it's a, the anxiety that churns up in your gut that you can't get rid of or some kind of looming depression, this cloud that follows you around. Or perhaps uh, it's a relational weakness. You actually just feel like your, your marriage is a bit frail or your relationship with your family is a bit frail. I see a few of you shaking your heads um, and I, I, I like that. I appreciate that. Um, or perhaps actually it's on the other side and you've, you've suffered with lifelong loneliness and that's your weakness. Now all of these things, because they are weaknesses, they feel inherently limiting, don't they? And it's easy for us in a quite a logical way to think, if Christ were to remove this weakness, whatever it is, fill in the blank, if Christ were to remove it, actually things would be so much better for Christ, wouldn't they? Wouldn't I be a better advertisement for Christ if I wasn't constantly struggling with all of these things? So as my friends looked on, they said, that's the good life, being in Christ. Or wouldn't I have much more time and energy to devote to the cause of Christ if I wasn't constantly focusing on this weakness of mine? The Apostle Paul had a similar thought, didn't he? And you know the passage well from 2 Corinthians 12, in which he has this thorn in the flesh. And we don't actually know what kind of a weakness that was. It may have been um, psychological, it may have been physical, it may have been relational. And three times he asked Christ uh, to take it away. And Christ's response was, no, actually, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response is is so glorious. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. And here's the key phrase, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Our logic may say that our weaknesses are inhibiting to the power of Christ, But heavenly logic says that our weaknesses actually attract the power of Christ. And that's exactly what we see here. This weak church, because it is faithful, and don't miss that either. This is not a weak and lazy church. This is not a weak and disobedient church. This is a weak and faithful church. And because of that, Christ has opened a door. Christ's power has come in the form of a wide open door. And what is that wide open door? You can see why that's an irresistible conclusion because that term open door is used many times in that exact context. In the book of Acts, in Paul's letters, uh, a door has been opened for the word and so on. But I think actually a a more primary meaning um, reveals itself just as you read through the book. We've got to remember that these opening letters to the churches are actually the introduction to the book of Revelation. 
And whichever church you happen to be from at the time, that would be, in a sense, the way that you read the book. You've been given specific words from Christ, and actually all of them find fulfilment and are elaborated on as you read through the book of Revelation. So if you're a Philadelphian and you read that there is an open door for you, you're going to look for what exactly that is. And in fact, that appears straight after these letters to the churches in chapter 4, verse 1. Have a look there. John says, After this I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, this is the voice of Jesus, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. So the open door is first and foremost, we will get to evangelism, but the open door is a door to heaven. And it goes on then, John goes on to detail a glorious description of what heaven is like in chapters 4 and 5. If you haven't spent much time there recently, go back and read through in one sweep 4 and 5 again and meditate upon it. You have, um, you have in that description God in the middle of heaven sitting on his throne. And uh, John has no way to describe him except by speaking about various different costly jewels. And then from the throne of God, it's not a silent place. There's actually um, there's thunder, there's lightning, there are rumblings coming. And around God's throne are um, 24 other thrones. And there are these 24 elders. And then there are these four living creatures. And there's the Spirit of God that's pictured as seven bronze burning torches. And then there's Christ who is pictured both as the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah and as the slain lamb. And Christ himself has these seven horns and these seven eyes, which are also the spirit of God. It's an amazing scene. Millions of angels surrounding. An amazing scene. It's a colourful scene. It's a loud scene. Everyone's singing. There are um, about three songs during that um, description of heaven. It's a joyous, colourful, glorious packed scene. And so what Christ is saying then to this Philadelphian church, dwindling, just, uh, just a few dozen of them, sitting in their pews on a Sunday, he's saying to them, look, the synagogue doors may be shut to you. Maybe certain doors in society have been shut to you because of my name. But this door is open, a door to the very presence of God, a door to the place in which it will not just be a few dozen of you, but you'll actually be joined by multitudes for all eternity, praising God face to face. So firstly, it's a door open to heaven. But then secondly, I think there is a door open here also to witness. But that comes in verse 9. Have a look at verse 9 there. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Um, this is a, what scholars call an ironic fulfilment um, of certain passages in Isaiah. Um, it's an ironic fulfilment because in certain passages in Isaiah, the promise is that non-Jewish Gentile nations will bow down before the Jews. And here we actually have the Jews, um, the Jewish synagogue, bowing down before the church. I'll give you just one of those prophecies from Isaiah 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. 
So what's pictured here is firstly vindication. Actually we'll find that Christ who are oppressed, um, who are told that they're outside of the kingdom of God, actually we'll find that Christ reveals himself to be with them. But then secondly, it speaks of conversion. Because the word uh, rendered here, bowed down, uh, is also the word for worship in the New Testament. And it's never a word used of something coerced. It's not like you're, you're forced to bow down before your enemies. It's always a willing act of devotion. That's what the word means. Uh, but also then the prophecies um, that I mentioned from Isaiah, all of them mention not just people bowing down before someone in servitude, but actually recognising something. We saw that, um, that they, they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. There's a recognition of God's presence. There's a, a sort of repentance. And so we find here that the living Christ then has opened to this church a door, not only to heaven, but a door also to fruitful evangelism, to fruitful witness, that there will be converts as they stand firm in Christ. And the motivation for this church um, to evangelize, to, uh, to convert the, the city around them, also comes by peering through that first door into heaven. So we described the scene as it's set up uh, in chapter 4. In chapter 5, we see that um, the heavenly choir turns from singing about God on the throne and starts singing a song to the slain lamb. Turn with me um, to chapter 5 just briefly, if you would. Revelation 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see there that they're singing a song about the slain lamb who has not just ransomed um, the 36-odd people in Philadelphia or even the seven churches in Asia, but he's actually ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This sentence, this song, has been the fuel for missionary activity for 2,000 years since. It teaches us um, a doctrine that we call, I say we as a, I'm a closet Presbyterian, you guys are out in the open Presbyterians, um, what we call uh, limited atonement. It's a singularly unfortunate name, but it's a very, very precious doctrine. A very precious doctrine indeed, because it teaches us that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not just um, to make salvation possible for the whole world, was not just to fling the door open so that people would have an opportunity to be saved, but that Christ's death on the cross actually saved a specific group of people. That Christ's death on the cross actually atoned for the sins of the specific group of people for whom he died. And you see that here. They're not singing to Christ because he made salvation possible. They're singing to Christ because he actually ransomed people. He actually bought people. He purchased people. That means they belong to God now, these people who have been gathered out of every tribe and language and people and nation. So you see then how this has massive motivating power for evangelism. Firstly, it tells us that no one is beyond the reach of Christ. Right? Uh, we sung before a, a chorus, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Um, the hymn that that's originally from is by a guy called Charles Wesley. 
And it's got a great line in it. He says, His blood, Christ's blood, can make the foulest clean. Christ's blood can make the foulest clean. It occurs to me now, Charles Wesley didn't believe in limited atonement, so he'd probably hate me quoting that. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't know. I'm called my kid Wesley, so maybe that will make up for it in his, in his eyes. Um, his blood can make the foulest clean. You may be here tonight, you may be here tonight, having sinned against a holy God. In fact, I know you're here tonight. That's all of us, right? You're here tonight having sinned against an infinitely holy and worthy God. The doctrine of the atonement tells us that the infinitely worthy and precious blood of the Son of God actually covers that sin. Whatever it is, it can be atoned for. But secondly, this doctrine of limited atonement teaches us that fruitfulness in evangelism is guaranteed. I wonder if you believe that. That as you proclaim the gospel, fruitfulness, converts, people coming to know Christ is guaranteed. The reason it's guaranteed is because everything is in order. Um, I've just talked about the hardest point of Calvinism, so I may as well talk about the whole thing. Um, The Father has predestined a people to be adopted by him from before the foundations of the world. And then Christ, 2,000 years ago, died for that same group of people to ransom them from their sins. And now the Holy Spirit stands ready in time to regenerate that same people, to draw that same people under the preaching of the gospel. So what is left then for us is good news. Let's get practical for a second there, uh, here. Um, Because, I mean, one of the main things we want to be about, right, as Christians is making disciples. This is what we're here for. Let's get practical. Uh, I think most of us have been raised on a kind of um, teaching about friendship evangelism, right? That's been the dominant paradigm through which we view evangelism. Um, and what I'm going to say in a second is going to sound like a critique of that, but it's really not. Um, I, in fact, I heard a story just a few weeks ago about someone from this very church who has um, been very fruitful in, uh, in friendship evangelism. So, um, so if, if you're good with that, then, then keep going with it. Friendship evangelism essentially is this idea that evangelism is a many-step process. First, you want to you make friends. Secondly, you want to sort of earn their trust over many, many years. And then you want to take opportunities to share the good news and win your friend. And said that way, that's a perfectly biblical and right way to go about things. The problem is often we can end up with many friends and no disciples. Many friends, but we haven't actually got to the evangelism part. Or maybe you're just bad at making friends. I've got to confess, I'm just bad at making friends. My, um, my wife did a couple of degrees at uni and it seemed like from like week one she had 14 mates and they were all sort of hanging out together and she's still friends with them now. Meanwhile, I was in the Master of Teaching sitting by myself at a table for two years straight. Ended up going online because it was so depressing going into tutorials. I'm just not good at making friends. We can overcomplicate things though because biblically speaking, you don't need to have a long friendship with someone for them to come to faith. Biblically speaking, you don't need to actually earn the trust of someone over many years for them to come to faith. Biblically speaking, you don't need to do a ton of social programs in the city for people to come to faith. What does the scripture say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So that means, um, to simplify things for us, that 
actually our only job in evangelism, our main job in evangelism, is simply to get people in earshot of the message of Jesus, isn't it? However we do it, just to get people in earshot of the message of Jesus, because it is that message that produces faith in people. Friendship evangelism is one way of doing that. Um, but if you're, I'm going to drill down and get more practical to the point of a, of a challenge here. If, if you find that friendship evangelism isn't actually working for you, and as you think back over the last week, month, year, 10 years, um, you haven't actually had those opportunities, but you're actually eager to go with evangelism, let me give you a challenge. Find one hour a week. Uh, sorry, a week. A week would be good. Find one hour a month. I think all of us have an hour a month. And use half of that hour just to pray to God. Just get down on your knees, ask him for a love for his glory, ask him for a love for your neighbours, ask him for words to speak, ask him for boldness to proclaim. And then take the next half an hour and go down your road or go into your neighbourhood and knock a few doors. And in doing that, um, you, could, you could do that in a number of different ways. You could knock the door and say, I'm a Christian, I have some great news and I want to tell it to you. Or you could, uh, you could say, I'm a Christian, I care about you, and I'd like to pray for you. Is there something I can pray for? And maybe they'll see the work of God in their life. Or maybe you could knock the door and say, I'm from a local church, Soul Church, and I wanted to invite you along. Maybe you could make up a flyer or something. Come along to Soul Church. The gospel is proclaimed every week here, right? And that's actually very unusual. In my church, it's like three times a year maybe the gospel is in the message, right? But every single week here, the gospel is proclaimed and people are called to repentance. And so maybe you just knock a door and you invite them to come. It can be that simple. And however you do it, the door to evangelism, to fruitful evangelism is wide open. Christ's death has purchased people in your neighbourhood, at your workplace, so, Christ then ends by pointing us to two promises. Two promises. Firstly, there's a promise for the present, and that is security through trials. Um, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. He says to the church in Philadelphia, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. Some take this as a reference to the rapture. Uh, hands up, did anyone uh, read the Left Behind books or watch the terribly B-grade movie here? Jacob's got sort of half a hand up. You're, you're ashamed, I understand. I'll raise my hand proudly. I enjoyed those books. Um, terrible theology, but great writing. Um, some take it as a reference to the, the rapture, this idea that the church is sort of pulled out of the earth and all the cars they were driving crash and the planes go down uh, and then the tribulation begins. Um, but you've got to wonder, if this is a reference to the rapture of Christ removing the Philadelphian church before the trouble comes, you've got to wonder then why the other churches uh, are not promised this. And in fact, the church, uh, Smyrna, you'll, you'll, you probably won't remember, but Smyrna are told that they will actually go through tribulation. It's not a reference to the rapture. I think actually what's being spoken of here is a promise from Christ that he will keep this church spiritually safe in the midst of a physical trial. You'll keep them spiritually safe in the midst of a physical trial. And that's very consistent with this, the strange way that Jesus talks often. Here's a, a passage from Luke 12 about persecution. He tells his disciples, You will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. 
By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus said, they'll kill you, but don't worry, not a hair of your head will perish. They'll kill you, but don't worry, you'll gain your lives. Now, that's either unbelievable sleight of hand from Christ, or it reveals the fact that there is a death that is worth, worse than physical death. And there is a life that is more to be prized than physical life. I went to two funerals recently. I went to a funeral in the week of an 89-year-old woman who uh, was a Christian all her life. She was uh, involved in the community. She had five kids, 14 grandkids when she died. Beautiful and beloved. Safe with Jesus. I went to a funeral a year ago of a 29-year-old man. He was antagonistic toward faith for his entire life, up until six months before he died at which point he became a Christian in a radical uh, conversion to Christ. And he too now is safe with Jesus. So which of those two did Jesus deliver? Which of those two did Jesus keep safe to the end? One of them uh, got to live a long and full life on this earth. The other one was taken um, before he had any family, any kids, any career advancement, anything like that. In the eyes of the world, I mean, one got a great deal. But passages like this tell us, actually, both of them were delivered by Christ. Both of them have been taken home safely by Christ. So you may die, but you will gain your life. Last bit, eternal promise. So that was a, a promise for now and now a promise for later. Um, and the promise for later, for eternity, is that we will be God's possession Forever. Don't you love the way that Jesus ends these letters with these pointing forward to eternity? We will be God's possession forever. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. Sometimes we talk about the Bible as if it's a symmetrical thing. It begins in a garden in fellowship with God. It ends uh, with fellowship with God in the New Jerusalem. And so it's sort of nicely bookended. There's the fall in, in between and redemption. But actually, it's, that's not strictly speaking true. The story begins with God alone. No human beings in sight. Just the, the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit in perfect devotion to each other. It begins that way, but it doesn't end that way, does it? It doesn't end with God going, well, that was a fun experiment with humans. Now let's delete those and uh, we will remain. We'll go back to our harmony. Actually, unfathomably, God has decided to put up with you forever, to have you, human beings, in his presence forever. That's how much he loves human beings. That's how much he loves his people. And we see here that um, these people who will be with God forever enjoy a great reversal the weak and insignificant in this world, it says here, will be pillars in the temple. The ones who were forced out of polite society will never leave his presence. The ones who were rejected by family, by friends, will actually be stamped with the name of God for all eternity. Better is one day in that place than a thousand elsewhere. So look forward to eternity and let that colour your life now. There will be no weakness then psychological, physical, relational. There will be no weakness then. So we can be content with a little bit of weakness now. There will be pleasures forevermore then. So we can forego a little bit of pleasure now when Christ calls us to it. 
There'll be no evangelism then. There'll be no opportunity to see sinners come to Christ then. So let's get busy in the work of evangelism now. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.